This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. No one's seen success coming. So the fact that we all got to experience the huge explosion of just popularity in real time, it's, it's definitely something that will probably stand with me for the rest of my life. Welcome to Game Dev Advice the Game Developers Podcast, your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me, it's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Today's guest is James Brady a talented freelance artist. He's worked on games like PUBG, Hitman 2, Red Dead Redemption 2, Insurgency Sandstorm, Firewall Zero Hour, Halo, Last Year the Nightmare, The Forest, and many others. He's based out of Ireland and currently working for a studio here in the U.S. remotely. He's been in-house working at places like Rockstar, remotely as a freelancer, and been in the industry for four years now. Okay, let's kick things off now with James. Okay, I've got James here today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> cool. Let's start off with the first question. Tell me about what your current role is right now. Yeah, sure. So at the moment, um, I'm a full-time freelancer. I'm working on four different projects at the moment between European and American companies. And... Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Can you just mention those four games, if possible? If not, that's fine too. Um, so basically, uh, I'm working on Not My Car, which is a battle royale game made by an indie studio in California. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much just the same principles as PUBG, except you're in cars. You know, you jump out of the plane in cars and you have to loot and find weapons and survive. Mm. Um, the other projects, unfortunately, I can't disclose due to NDAs. Yeah. No, it's totally fine. But, all right, another Battle Royale, but this, the twist is now it's in cars. Interesting. <laughs> so how did you get started in the, the video game industry? Kind of talk me through it. 
Sure. So I started off in 2015. I had the opportunity to join Creative Assembly as a QA tester on Total War Warhammer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I moved over from Ireland to England to join them. And I worked there for the guts of the year. We shipped Total War Warhammer, including two DLC releases. And in that time, I kind of was wanting to progress more into like an artist role. And I seen that Rockstar Games were hiring a junior artist in, in the UK studio. So I applied and then I ended up working at Rockstar for 12 months on Red Dead Redemption 2. And then. Ah, little game. Nobody's heard of that. Um, <laughs> so uh, was that in Edinburgh, right? Or no, where was that? So they have a studio in Leeds, which is like um, one of the art support studios for the main studio in Edinburgh. Okay. Um, smaller team, it's about 80 in total, a uh, smaller studio. Mm-hmm. So I essentially joined them to kind of just help like on the art front with the project. Right. Yeah, I, I always found it interesting. Like a lot of the uh, the real early Grand Theft Autos were developed in uh, Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, which was uh, kind of funny because they had such an American flair to them that they were developed over in Scotland. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I know that they have a studio in New York and San Diego. Um, mm-hmm. I think the New York one's just a publisher, but I know San yep. Diego like do all development. Yeah, San Diego's a huge studio uh, from what I know. And, and yeah, New York's more the publishing arm. All the, the suits and whatnot are there. But yeah, there's, uh, there's a big studio down in, uh, out west there in San Diego. Um, keep talking through. It's uh, after uh, Red Dead and uh, Rockstar. Then what? Yeah, so essentially the summer of 2017, I decided to, I seen that the guys working on Player Unknown's Battlegrounds were hiring a, an environment artist. And at the time of Rockstar, hmm. I was kind of doing more like junior art tasks. So there wasn't as much art per se involved. A lot of it was just optimization and kind of doing like polish passes uh-huh. in like areas of the map. So I kind of at that point was like, you know, I really want to jump in and kind of get my hands dirty and just like fully fledged art. And I seen that uh, the Madison studio for PUBG were hiring an environment artist. And so I reached out to them and I was like, hey guys, you know, they're looking at the project. It looks really great. And, you know, I'd love to join you guys as environment artists. And then they got back to me and they were like, yeah, for sure. Like they're super interested, but the only issue is immigration. So yeah. we, we had a lot of back and forth trying to see if there was any opportunities for me to actually get a visa to move to Madison. Unfortunately, at the end, there wasn't. So they were like, okay, well, we'll take you on as a remote artist. Um, and it gave me an initial contract of six months. So mm-hmm. the summer of July, then I left Rockstar to go work in PUBG. <laughs> and at this time, yeah. I kind of was like, oh, well, I, I guess I'm a freelancer now, you know? Um, so yeah, it literally was a case of, I left Rockstar, I started on PUBG, and we started um, battling art for Murmur, the, uh, the desert map that came out later that year. Mm-hmm. I, during that time, I was still living in Leeds, so I decided to relocate back to Ireland and to be closer to my family. Mm-hmm. And um, since then, I've essentially just been freelancing. Uh, the projects I've been freelancing have been PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds, Forest, Hitman 2, Firewall Zero, Vigor, Insurgency Sandstorm, Last Year of the Nightmare, uh, hmm. Among many, many more projects, probably about I've probably worked on at least twenty two, twenty three in total between in house and AAA. Wow, I mean that, that's a lot considering um, that's really a lot considering the amount of time uh, you've been in the industry to have that many titles under your belt. I'm just really kind of uh, interested in that story about you know being from a small town in Ireland and and getting into the game industry. So like, um, 
what games did you play when you were young and what were your aspirations, you know, to get started? Yeah, so sure. I'll, like, I mean, I'll go back right back to drawing crayons with crayons. You know, uh, for me, it was kind of, um, you know, it started. I was living with my parents. My dad worked in a graphic design company. When I was like three, he was sleeping in to play video games um, mm-hmm. with like cookies and orange juice. And the first game we played was Marathon from Bungie. Oh, yeah. And um, we also played Syndicate, which I think the company was Bullfrog. Yeah. And that kind of really like that kind of kickstarted my interest in video games. And then later we got the PlayStation One um, and then uh-huh. bought my daughter and it was talking. And oh, uh, okay. you know, I seen that and it kinda of just I guess just the visual fidelity of it kind of blew me away. And mm-hmm. I, I essentially that kind of start kick started my interest in games, but mm-hmm. from a very young age I had absolutely no intentions of being an artist in the games industry. So later on, throughout my years, um, in my younger teen years, I was at school and uh, we had like art class. And because my dad does a lot of concept art and he's worked on like doing concept art for like uh, World of Warcraft. Oh, wow. My teachers would be very much like, you know, oh, you know, your dad's a fantastic artist. You know, there's absolutely no problem. Like, you sure shit should be able to make something to his, you know, ability. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, so that just made me absolutely hit the art project, like the whole art like class. I just was like, I never. I'm not going to do it because of you, Dad. I'll show you. <laughs> My whole initial aspiration was to be a scientist in a, with a bioscience degree, hmm. and um, moving on, like basically fast forwarding from Marathon. And um, when Bungie released Halo, um, my parents bought me the Xbox, and yeah. that was the very first game I played on console. So I got extremely interested, and obviously it was Bungie. And then Halo 2 came yep. out at Christmas, and my parents bought me the anniversary edition with kind of like a making of DVD. And I remember watching uh, the making of DVD, and that kind of just started really turning the gears in my head. Like, holy crap, like, this is actually what I want to do. And yeah. at that time, I never knew it was 3D art. I just knew I wanted to work on games, and that's all I wanted to do. I mm-hmm. had no idea yeah. what, you know, discipline. Um, and then kind of later on, I just started somehow, I kind of find my way onto Maya and uh, 3ds max mm-hmm. and i started practicing and this time i was still at school and i want you know i kind of thought to myself okay well to get into the games industry surely you just need a degree so my options within work get a degree in the art field were extremely limited because ireland mm. pretty much had a, a non-existent games industry at this point and it was over here it was seen as a phase and just a hobby like you, you won't make money off it um, it's a pet rock. It's, it's a it's a fad. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, basically, uh, my only option was to go and get a degree in essentially computer science. So I was like, okay, well, no, because I'm not good at maths. Um, <laughs> probably yeah. can't yeah. to save my life. So that ain't gonna happen. You and me both. Yeah. So basically, it kind of was just. I did a year course after school, high school, which was pretty much like a diploma, like a one year diploma in game design, which had mm-hmm. like two modules dedicated to that and the rest were just random topics to kind of just fill it out. So mm-hmm. I essentially, after assignments, I would kind of start cranking out a 3DS Max in my free time, just kind of learning the modeling tools. I became the kind of go-to person in the class for creating 3D models for any projects that come up. And if they wanted like a demonstration in Unreal Engine 3, which is UDK at that time, of like a emergency exit demonstration for the college. So I was assigned yeah. to doing that. And then after that, after I graduated, I kind of 
I kind of flickered for a while throughout like at least three or four years of kind of being like, okay, I'm going to work on my portfolio and do the art. And then I kind of stick at it for like three months and then like, I'll screw this. And I go and, you know, just get a job in a store close by or whatnot and work that. I think mm-hmm. it came to about 2015 where I just kind of hit a point where I was like, you know what? Like, I really still want to do this and make this, you know, a viable career and make a reality. Um, I either put the energy in my focus to get a portfolio to get into a studio or it's just never happening. So I was working at a call center. So I essentially quit my job, just started busting the nut on a portfolio, doing all my years, just continuously cranking out the work, even though my work back then was just absolutely terrible. Um, yeah. And I was applying to studios. I had art tests and interviews. And I, mm-hmm. I kept getting declined. So I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe I need to take a step down. So I applied to Creative Assembly for the QA tester and Total War Warhammer. And yeah. thankfully, I managed to get that. So that was kind of like my foot into the industry. Yep. That is the way a lot, um, you know, even still now. I mean, it, it totally was back in 20, 30 years ago. But yeah, QA is a good foot in the industry and it gives you exposure to the different disciplines and yeah. uh, you get to kind of, as we say, see how the sausage is made, right? And you get to be part of the uh, <laughs> process and uh, especially there at the end of it and um, and things like that. So you got into QA and then that was your foothold to then show your portfolio to people and things? or Yeah. So essentially during that time, I was friends with a lot of the art team on Facebook and I was just kind of like, when I go home in the evenings, I continue to work on the art because I knew I essentially just wanted to make art. Um, mm-hmm. And they kind of got a whiff of my portfolio and my ability so they were kind of trying to niggle me into the whole like, hey, bring them on as like a associate environment artist to kind of do more of the art stuff for like Total War. Um, yeah. But obviously I had quite a bad time working in QA because there was a bit of a power struggle going on. So they kind of like totally yeah. slammed down on that. And they were like, hell no, like you're QA or you're out of here basically. So I That's was like, thankfully I got the opportunity then to take, enough, you know, take the junior art role to Rockstar. So... Yeah, essentially just transitioned to Rockstar and continued, you know, working on Red Dead Redemption 2. And then mm-hmm. in the evenings, continued to work on my portfolio. And, you know, during mm-hmm. this time, I was um, featured in, like, magazines for some of the art I did. And I did a, a weekend project, which was, like, an Unreal Engine scene of a school. And my friend was like, hey, that actually looks like Sign Hill. So I was just like, oh, screw it. I'll call it Sign Hill. And I posted it <laughs> online. And it kind yeah. of just gained traction of one of those sort of, like, Sign a Hill remake in real in, in real engine four and um, within like a week it was just all over the all over the wow. internet on all the like gaming sites from the US to France to Asia from like Eurogamer to Destructoid to oh. many, many, many more sites. Wow. Um, so that was quite crazy because it was absolutely not intentional and somehow some editor got whiff of the scene and just posted it and mm. it was just I literally watched... Um, went viral, as they say, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it was on, like, Unilab as well and over Facebook, and it was hmm. just absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, and, and I give you credit, right? Because you came to a fork in the road and, like, am I just going to work in this store and is this, you know, going to be the rest of my life? Or am I going to, you know, double down and put the work in and get my portfolio together? And and obviously, you're very smart on the internet, right? And And using social networks and connecting with people and being able to reach out and ask if people are hiring and, and that you're not just being passive about it. You're being very ambitious and aggressive about it. And exactly, you know, yeah. that, that's why we're talking today. You reached out to me after listening to the podcast and I looked at your reel and looked at your background. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting story. And, um, <laughs> I should talk with this guy. You know, and it's, it's funny because I hear of a lot of people like um, over the last probably 12 months, I've kind of just detached myself from the whole 
noise of the games industry. Like I wouldn't be friends with more people on Facebook and I kind of close my LinkedIn down a little bit and have my own mm-hmm. personal website because I find like if you're in the bubble for too long, it kind of it becomes toxic very quickly. Um, yeah. I've had friends who are like, you know, if you reach out to people for podcasts and magazines and stuff, it's kind of seen as cheating. Like they have to reach out to you, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, yeah. so that, that's another, uh, you know, aspect of the spectrum, I guess. Yeah, no. And as long as you've got something interesting to share and you've got some a cool reel or a background or a portfolio or story, yeah, there's no reason, you know, why people wouldn't have you on. I mean, I reached out to the guys at Game Dev Unchained and, um, yeah, I was on their podcast last November. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it was, I think, episode 163, something like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, y- you have to get out there and, and um, you know, without being sleazy or, or, or being a, a pest, but, but just let people know about you and um, be uh, visible and, and do things. And, you know, like your thing going viral, you know, that was a big deal. So, like, had you not done that and taken the time and initiative to develop that, you know, your story could have changed. And you, you went from 2015 working at the store to 2017, you're working on PUBG, which, you know, went on to be one of the, you know, the biggest games in this last five or 10 years. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty amazing story. It's absolutely insane. And I mean, I've literally moved back to Ireland where there's no industry. Well, there is an industry now. I mean, we have like John and Brenda Romero over in Galway. And then we have like, you know, hmm. people from Riot starting up their own studio in Dublin, which is our capital city. But uh-huh. prior to that, it was literally a case like I moved home and I definitely consider myself to be very lucky where I've moved home and I've continued to work on huge projects, being in a small little town in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool, right? I mean, that's powerful. It's like you don't have to be in, you know, California or wherever, you know, like the traditional viewpoint is uh, to be in games now because you know, the world is flat now. Exactly. Uh, you know, the, the internet, for better or for worse, changes the playing field. So Yeah, and the, the internet makes the world a very small place. I mean, I've had inter- I had job opportunities with Ubisoft in Toronto and Epic in Montreal. And I was very close to taking the leap to actually relocate over to Toronto to work at Ubisoft and Far Cry. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of thought more about it. I was like, you know what? Like, I mean, I've managed to keep this boat afloat for this long as a freelancer working on huge titles. So... I kind of yeah. just in the end was like, you know what, I'm going to just do that. Uh, big thanks to Ubisoft, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and if it suits your um, your lifestyle and you, you like being a night owl and then uh, working on multiple projects and, you know, hell, you, you get a lot more uh, pieces for your portfolio uh, under your belt by freelancing versus, you know, being in a studio working on one game. Exactly, uh, yeah. That suits you and no reason why you shouldn't. So, um PUBG Battlegrounds, talk me through that. I mean, you know, that had to be pretty amazing to work on and just see this thing just take off on a rocket ship, right? Like, yeah. how did that go? I mean, it, it was crazy because I remember when I was at Rockstar, I was just at a point where I was so desperate to kind of took on more of an artistic role. And I've seen that they were hiring. I actually seen the advertisement on ArtStation and I've, I never heard of the project before. So I was like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. So they gave me the contract and we kicked it off and at first, I was a little embarrassed to kind of tell that people and friends, like, hey, I'll actually just quit Rockstar to go work in this little project that, like, nobody's <laughs> really heard of, you know? And what are you doing, man? You've lost your mind. You, you, you left Rockstar to work in some little project, PUBG? What? Yeah. What are you thinking? You know, I remember, you know, like, uh, I left the studio and I was walking back to my my, uh, my flat and I was thinking to myself, like, you know, 
if this fails, I become the essentially the water cooler conversational rock star. It's just like, hey, it's not like I quit. So yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean, I remember when we started, it was only, I think it was in beta mode still. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. it basically it was not popular at all. And um, during the time of working on it, we started to see it slowly pick up traction, you know, and, and like uh, people like Doki Disrespect were playing it and streaming it. At this point, it wasn't even the highest played game on Steam. Like we literally watched it climb from like the middle of the charts right up to the top. And uh, wow! So, what do you think drove that? I, I mean, was it the uh, the Twitch players and people playing playing online and people watching others playing get excited about it, or or because I mean, there wasn't like a huge advertising push that you see on no, TV or anything. There really wasn't. You know, it's people have asked me this before and. It's something I can't really answer. I think it was literally just like a natural phenomenon, kind of just a once-off mm-hmm. sort of hit and miss, but kind of just the right time at the right place and just kind of yeah. gained the traction of games. I mean, I think the game's pretty fun. You know, I've been playing it for like a long time. And when I started playing it, when I started working on it, I started to realize that it was quite, you know, there was always like replayability to it. So like you would never kind of like get bored and you can jump in and, I think it's essentially just down to the fact that you're in a plane with a hundred other players around the world, you land on a map and have to loot and survive, and that can end in any kind of sort of scenario. You know, yeah. so there's just always a lot of interesting outcomes. And I think, you know, it's it's totally like easy to be to go from the hundredth player to the twentieth, but then trying to get from the twentieth to the last man standing is just like it's like really, really difficult and it's that kind of like adrenaline rush moment of just like oh Oh my god, I have to like kill everyone else and survive. So, yeah, I think yeah. it definitely provides a lot in that front. Um, but yeah, it was just crazy, crazy to see it being, you know, showing off at E3 and mm-hmm. Brenton announcing the release on Xbox. And then when Miramar came out, it just kind of seemed to explode like <laughs> so much popularity yeah. and millions of people playing it. It's just absolutely just insane. <laughs> yeah, it feels kind of like one of those lightning in a bottle moments, right? Where it was just this convergence of this kind of gameplay with the environments and like that tension that's inherent to the kind of countdown and like, Oh shit, I'm number 19 left. I, I got to stay alive. And just that the rush you get from, from trying to be with the last one standing. And um, yeah, it had to be amazing. Just like to, to see that uh, hockey, hockey stick curve of growth where the thing just shot through the roof, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and the thing is like when I was working on it, they posted me a PUBG developer t-shirt from E3 Mm-hmm. And on the front, it has like winner winner chicken dinner, and it has like hashtag E3. Uh, I think it was like 2016, 2017. Um, the days where I kind of just forget how popular the game is, and I'd be wearing the t shirt, and I start to kind of people's heads start to turn, and I'm like, oh <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was like I, I came back from GDC last year, and I brought home a Fortnite t shirt, showed it to my sons, and my one son was just like, give me that. I want that shirt now. I'm like, easy, Jack. <laughs> All right, here you go. You can have the Fortnite shirt. Um, but yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so what about advice you would give someone, you know, looking to get their first job in the industry? So I think it's it's a wide, very wide question, but to all it down, I think the most important thing is to know what it is you want to do in the games industry. You know, is it art? You know, do you have a niche and a flair for sound and music? Can you code? Are you good at design? Do you just want to test the games? You know, it's really kind of like the starting with the absolute, like the crayons per se, and just knowing exactly what you want to do. And then it's essentially sort of just really honing your abilities and your skills in one specific area. 
you know, there's no there's mm-hmm. no such thing as generalists in the games industry within like the art, you know, uh, category. And I think it's just important to really kind of just just to know what you need to do, you know, hone your skills and just practice and making yourself as visible as possible online, you know, in the sense that joining like forums and websites that kind of are dedicated mm-hmm. to the ability you want to get good at, like, you know, for artists, it's like Polycount and ArtStation. Um, and getting yeah. to know industry people through like social media and LinkedIn, just making everyone aware of, you know, who you are and what you want to do in the industry and just connecting and, you know, if there's certain studios you want to work at, just add the art directors and such on LinkedIn and be like, hey, I'm a big fan. Are you guys hiring? Um, mm-hmm. for, especially for artists, it's important to kind of hone your portfolio in their art style for the projects. So if it's, if you want to go work in Fortnite, you know, make your portfolio more stylized art that fits with the art direction of Fortnite. If you want to go work in Call of Duty, make it more realistic. I think yeah. that's extremely important. And I think also, you know, if if it's within the art um, category, it's important to kind of know which area you want to specialize in. So that could be environment art, cards art, weapon art. And I think with that, mm-hmm. it's extremely important to have your portfolio focusing on just one specific area. You know, no art director wants to open a portfolio for an environment artist that has like five weapons, like three character sculpts and... right. And some character drawings and yeah, yeah. right. It, yeah. Cause it does make it hard. You, you have to put yourself, you know, in the shoes of the other person. It's like, I need to fill an environment artist. So I need to see those portfolios. And, and if the person opening um, the portfolio has to then dig around and look and try and find what they're looking for, that's just time that's ticking against you and they're going to close that tab. So um, it may even be smart to, um, you know, when you focus on areas, you even have different, subsections of your portfolio that you can share that are targeted towards those jobs because you know the shorter the link is between this is what I do and this is what you're looking for it's easier for them to go huh all right let's talk to this person for this role but exactly. you know i've i've seen lots of times where people apply for a job and then their portfolio is nothing like what that job description is so it's like well maybe you can but there's no pieces to show that you can do that and that's just too much of a leap for a company or you know people to take so you have to really tailor that stuff i think your point about specializing is important too uh also depending on like what kind of games you want to make you know triple a versus indie I, I think you can be more of a generalist you know when it comes to indie stuff um when, when you get bigger you know the triple a's yeah then you have to drill down a little bit more and specialize then tailor your portfolio around that and then approach those kind of companies. Yeah, exactly. And I find like, you know, I mean, art directors only have like a couple of minutes to check portfolios because they have to worry mm-hmm. about art teams and marketing and such. And it's like, if you have like, if you have a really awesome environment in your portfolio, but you have like other things like character sculpts and whatnot, that just really, really dilutes your best work and it just doesn't let it shine. So you know, mm-hmm. I always said people quality over quantity, you know, the less is more. Um, especially when it comes to people reviewing your portfolios for uh for jobs because you don't have yeah. time to go through like twenty five portfolio pieces. But if you've three fantastic environments or three fantastic weapons for a weapon art job, then boom, like you know, that gives you a higher yeah. chance. Yeah, it, it it makes it a closer fit and then there's there's less risk and less um well, I don't know, uh Let's see what the other portfolios are. And then someone else's portfolio 
is a better fit. And then you kind of fall off, uh, off the radar there at that point. Also to your point about art station. Yeah. I, I know that's a big thing at level X where, where I work and, um, we're always like, you know, who's that artist? And that's one of the first things uh, our art director and other artists do is, you know, check what their art station looks like. So yeah, it's important to have your best pieces up there and keep that up to date because that's very much almost like a, you know, a LinkedIn for artists when it comes to your reel and, and how you represent yourself on ArtStation says a lot as an artist. Exactly. Um, I mean, I guess the funny thing is that I used to be on ArtStation, but um, I closed my ArtStation down and created my own website. And I think it's more just for the fact that as a freelancer, it's like when you approach clients or art directors, sometimes it's kind of a good idea to maybe also just have your own website. If you have enough experience and exposure already, because if you apply to, like if you work for a client or you're kind of reaching out to a client being like, hey, I would love to do work for you. And you open your art station and see that you're following like 15 other freelancers who are probably even better than they kind of just dilute your opportunities and chances, you know, hmm. so. Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224-484-7733 or on the gamedevadvice.com website. Yeah, that's a great point. I not thought of that before. Cool. So what about other ways for people working uh, in the industry as an artist for them to, um, say, improve and get better? So I think the most important thing with that is just practice. You know, like practice doesn't beat anything. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no easy way around it. It's really just a case that you just have to keep turning out props, turning out weapons in your, you know, in your specific area and just keep practicing and holding, holding your skills. And stay it up to standard with industry standard tools, you know, like, you know, yeah. be familiar with ZBrush, be familiar with Autodesk software. Um, you know, if there's like extra plugins that make just your life a lot easier when you're modeling, or even if you have like accessible kit bash of just like screws and bolts, a lot of that stuff really mm-hmm. speeds up your, your workflow process. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, I definitely, I think like the most important thing is just to just keep practicing, you know, like, you know, an, an hour a night, you know, five hours a week, that's enough for a high poly, you know, that's something extra and it's you getting better to making better high poly models. Yeah. This has to be the passion, right? This has to be where your focus is and where, what do you obsess about? And, um, you know, people I work with, they go home and they're up to, you know, one or two in the morning, sometimes working on their own projects and putting together pieces for 80 level or something like that. So, um, it's not a, you know, punch in, punch out and don't think about it again, type, uh, career path. Um, you always have to be striving and learning and um, wanting to improve your chops and take, uh, learning new tools and things. So what's your favorite um, favorite new art tool that you're working on, you know, package or plug-in or thing that kind of jumps out? So I kind of have two. The first one is uh, UV uh, layout. I use that a lot for my own wrapping. Because I work on a, as a freelancer on multiple projects, it just makes my life so much easier on wrapping because it's literally like you're literally – cutting your mesh up in 3D world space into separate islands. And then you basically, the the application optimizes the size of those UV islands according to the mesh and then packs it all for you. So it's actually like three hours of unwrapping only takes you 15 minutes. An absolute blessing. Uh, another tool is ZBrush. Um, I do all my Boolean workflow through ZBrush. So like for the weapon mm-hmm. I made on my portfolio, it's the majority of that is all ZBrush instead of like, Subdividing or subdivision modeling in 3ds Max, I just literally bring in ZBrush, 
cut loads of holes and everything out of it and diamesh it all so it like it's back to like proper polygons and just swing it back into max and boom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And who makes that first uh plugin you were talking about? Or the- I, I don't actually know the guy's name, but I know online it's Hedus UV, so it's like H-E-A-D-U-S and then UV layout. Um I think the hmm. the indie or like the freelancer um license is only like $135, so it's like super cheap. But it's yeah. extremely, extremely proficient um, piece of software. Right. Well, three hours to fifteen minutes. Right. That that pays for itself in one use. Right there. I mean, that's uh... yeah, exactly. I mean, like I absolutely hate unwrapping, so like it literally does it all for me, and I just can trust that when I bring it in or when I texture it, that all the textile identity is just equal across the mesh. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So, what's been your uh, favorite game or project to work on? So I, I think, you know, being a guy from Ireland, um, it definitely has to be Player Unknown's Battlegrounds for the fact that Player Unknown and Brendan Green is actually from Kildare. Um, oh, wow. and Yeah. And I, didn't know, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's funny because I remember when I was trying to get into the industry and I was like doing all-nighters on my portfolio, I remember coming across a PC Gamer article and it was like, they don't like these articles where it was like, hey, show us your, like, your desk, your setup, you know, and one of them was Brendan Green, and I was like, who the fuck's Brendan Green? And I more right. researched, I more found out that he was a guy in Kildare working remotely on H1Z1. I think he was like a design consultant. And hmm. um, I think it's just funny how life works, where it's literally two years later, I end up working on his project. You know, so yeah, I think just being from Ireland, it's that kind of little like pet project where it's something I'll just always be like, no one had any idea it was going to be as successful as it was. No one's seen success coming. So the fact that we all got to experience the huge explosion of just popularity in real time, it's it's definitely something that will probably stand with me for the rest of my life. You know, just yeah. the fact like, wow, that, that game was just phenomenal. <laughs> well, yeah, because you had that experience and, and you saw it happen. And then um, you've got that credit under your belt, you know, for the rest of your career and the rest of your life. Like, you know, that's a game that you can say you worked on and everyone's like, Oh wow, you worked on that, you know, versus game, blah blah blah, and everyone's like, I don't know, what's what is that? And it's you it's know. funny too because it's like you know, I've been in the industry for so long, and I've worked in so many popular games from like Red Dead, Hitman, and everything. And I come from a little town in Ireland where it's kind of like you know, people don't really work in this industry, and people a lot of people don't really work in this industry in Ireland. You know, and friends and my mm-hmm. even my brothers would be like, oh, my brother worked on like PUBG or like Red Dead Two, and they're just like, what, like really? You know, and it. And they come and ask yeah. me, and they're like, hey, did you work on that? And I'm, because I've been doing it for so long now, it's just normal, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a weird a weird contrast. Yeah, I've had that too, where um, it's just like, yeah, I worked in these games and stuff, and people are just shocked by it. And it's just like, yeah, okay. You know, it's just <laughs> it's just like commonplace. And, and uh, I don't know, it's weird, because it's just, you don't think about it being so unusual. Um, yeah. But, and people find it really exciting. and. But then I also find like when I talk to people who do things that I find exciting, like I have a buddy that's a uh, lead engineer for a IndyCar racing team. Oh, and nice. um, yeah, and I'm just like, oh man, tell me about this. And tell me about that. And he worked with Jimmy Vassar when he won the uh, IndyCar championship and, you know, all those kind of things. And he's just like, yeah, you know, and, and he plays it down too. Like it's no big deal because that's just his job. And that's what he's been doing for 25 years. And yeah. you know, he works on race cars and he travels around the world and, and it's, it looks cool and sexy from the distance, but you know, when you do it, it's, um, 
it doesn't seem so crazy just because that's what you do, right? So Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm making game art for a living, but I still have days where I get up and I'm just like not bothered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um well the Ireland thing is cool too. Like let's kind of talk about the difference between say European and, and North American game development, because you have a lot of uh, perspective on that, although it seems like a lot of your games have been published in North America initially or, or North American publishers. But yeah, kind of talk about the difference between North America and Europe. Sure. So, I mean, for the time that I've worked on projects based in Europe, um, I think the most stark difference that stands out is the pace of production on a project. Um, hmm. European. so? In the, kind of in the sense that European studios kind of seem to be a bit more relaxed from what I've experienced. Um, and I kind of find American studios to be a bit more like go, go, go. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to like feedback adjustments and stuff for work. They're kind of like a bit more, you know, this needs to be done now, you know. Um, and it, for me, it, like, it's totally cool because my I kind of just work better in that sense. But for European studios, it, it, they just always seem to be just a bit more relaxed. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it could be a, a cultural thing too, you know, especially depending on the company and the publisher and where they are in the North America, uh, people tend to be kind of more uh, go, 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 high stress and, and things like that. I mean, I remember working a long time ago on a puzzle game called Zoop and we had like nine platforms. We had to launch them all simultaneously and there was a little developer in the UK called Hookstone and uh, it was up against the wire and of course you're trying to make it out for Thanksgiving and we need changes done and we were dealing with the developer in the UK and it was just like, Hey, we got to get stuff done. When are we going to, you know, when are we going to get the update? And they're like, sorry, mate, you know, it's five o'clock. It's Friday. You know, it's like, what? I'm like, I don't care if it's pub time. It's like, you know, we got to get these changes made. These cartridges have to go out. And uh, it was just like a, a clash of um, perspectives because we were so close to the end. For me, it was like, I right, just do this one more thing. And for them, they're like, it's pub time, man. What are you What are you asking me for, you crazy Americans? So, um, yeah, I, I can relate to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it's weird because I, I find I culturally I get on much much better with Americans for for some reason. I just any like UK studio I've worked with, I've had some sort of like friction in, in some kind of regard, you know. But with Americans, yeah. I just I just seem to click with a hundred percent, and I'm kind of like work in the same mindset and you know i work us dollars so it's oh okay yeah i took any kind of work from like here it would be kind of like 1 p.m to like at the very least i've ever had to work was 1 p.m to 4 a.m you know but mm-hmm. it, it works better for me because i just i'm more productive in the evening so it kind of it complements the hours than the u.s company yeah. on, online well yeah yeah if you're a night owl you know that that fits your your rhythm right and then um yeah the closer you are working remote to us hours uh, makes it less painful about like oh no we got to wait you know to the next day to get that thing from james now versus like oh i can ping him on slack here and you know we'll get it an hour or two so it makes it more seamless that you're uh, remote and it's not always like wait till the next day wait till the next day um you know i, I remember working at a company where we had a qa uh in india but they actually worked uh west coast hours because um it just made that iteration easier and quicker versus, uh, you know, the one day time delays um, when things are on the edge there, things like that. Exactly. What about difference in um, uh, marketplace, like games Americans like versus games Europeans like? And obviously there are those that are universal, the PUBGs and the Red Deads and things. But what thoughts do you have just about the 
two different markets and different tastes in games, I guess. So, you know, for me, from my experience so far, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, to see that. I think there's definitely one thing that stands out, and that's how Creative Assembly, the Total War franchise, I think it's more popular in Europe and the UK. I don't, I've not mm. really encountered anyone from the US because Total War. But again, maybe I just haven't, you know, came across that person. Um, but for the most part, I think the other projects seem to be pretty, it seems to be pretty seamless. You know, the markets, mm. I mean, I worked on CFEs and that's pretty big in both markets. Um, you know, PUBG, Hitman, maybe I'm not sure. I haven't really seen much activity with Hitman in the US. But again, it could just be a sense of not having exposure to, you know, the US market playing yeah um seems to be more european mm-hmm. yeah i think hitman probably has got a more of a, a european following um sea of thieves was pretty well received over here and yeah there are those ones that are just universal and then there's like you know the cricket games or the f1 games and things like that that are, are more for one market and then some of these you know american games i'm sure there's not uh as many or a ton of people in europe playing say madden football or something although <laughs> Yeah. You know, they play over there now, so maybe it's starting to grow. But yeah, there there are d- definitely uh, cultural differences between genres. Um, yeah, d- definitely. I worked for Blue Bite in the, way back in the past, and we would do turn-based strategy games. And the Battle Isle series was very, very popular in Europe. And, um, you know, we did it as uh, over here in the States as incubation. Time's running out. Sold like 5,000 copies, and nobody wow. really cared, unfortunately. Although one, you know, turn-based strategy game of the year in 1996, was it 1997 um but yeah there's you know turn-based strategy games generally have a bigger following in europe and especially germany um but again it's just flavors tastes sensibilities um for certain genres other ones are universal yeah exactly and i mean you know i think the most uh the marketplace stands out most is the asian like the japanese you know marketplace i mean it's pretty Pretty easy to see that the majority of Japanese games probably wouldn't do very well in like the US or European market, except for mm-hmm. the exceptions being like Metal Gear Solid. Um, and then you have like Clearing Those Battlegrounds that was done in Korea. But mm-hmm. I think that was initially the uh, South Koreans pushed to try and get into the West market, which was Clearing Those Battlegrounds. Yep. So, what about potential uh, threats do you see to the industry and along with opportunities? So, in terms of threats, I'm not entirely sure. I think we might hit a time where a lot of things will become automated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can kind of maybe see that happening more in like code and design, you know, and that kind of then puts people out of work. I think uh, on the art front, you know, maybe with how ph- photogrammetry is going, I kind of be a little worried that we get to a point where we just scan all our crops and we don't make crops <laughs> anymore. You know, right. we have an application that scans and optimizes them and creates a texture set and then you just import it and that's like acid artist side of, you know, jobs. Um, yeah. That's my only kind of worry. Regarding opportunities, I think <laughs> on the flip side, you know, with mm-hmm. the new technology coming up like, uh, you know, photogrammetry, it opens a lot more job opportunities in studios for people to, you know, specifically specialize in these areas. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. And um, yeah, I did a previous podcast with Dave Grace and he was talking about, you know, on the animation side, you see some concerns there with um, different machine learning and things like that and uh, ways to automate animation more where if you're an animator, you know, maybe you're in a little bit of trouble there. And then, uh, yeah, there's always the outsourcing too, right? Yeah. And when you're competing just based on cost, you know, there's other parts of the world that um, by 
competing on cost, you know, can do it for just so, so much cheaper um, than you can see in Europe or North America. So yeah, those are challenges too. You know, I mean, I think it's literally like, I remember here, like one European or one US artist is the equates to three Indian artists. Hence why outsource is extremely popular in India. So I think, you know, you have that battle, you know, and then, you know, as a freelancer, you know, artists in studios are becoming less and less because the majority of yep. the art gets outsourced to like art source vendors or freelancers. Um, mm-hmm. And you have a very small little art team in the studio that basically take all that, bring them into the world and optimize where they can. You know, I remember talking yep. with John Romero down at his studio one day, and we were talking about like just art and kind of like the different, uh, I guess, opportunities in the industry. And he was saying to me, you know, like, Mm-hmm. You know, you could hire an asset artist, but then when all the assets are done for the world and made, you know, like, they're kind of like, okay, well, why are you still here? You know, so it's like, mm-hmm. you'll often find that the increase of outsource will grow more and more, you know, as the projects get a lot larger as well. I mean, you have like, for your typical AAA, you probably have like four or five outsource studios working on it. And then like mm-hmm. an art team with maybe 30 internally. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it used to be, there would be hundreds of uh, artists internally at that studio. And yeah, you're totally right. It's more the internal people are uh, giving the art direction and management and things. And then it, it scales uh, up and down based on demand and then using, you know, outsourcing studios and individuals like yourself. Um, So yeah, I I think the, the days of, you know, hundreds of hundreds of fellow artists working at one studio or one company are, going down more and more yeah no definitely and i mean you know it's like i mean even with what happened with blizzard and the whole activision layoff yeah. i mean you know we've really hit a point in the industry where there is no job security and i think working as a freelancer mm-hmm. sometimes gives you more job security than working in the studio you know and mm-hmm. I, I always explain to people like when you're a freelancer it's like a hydra head you know you've got many heads of income and if one goes you're fine <laughs> You know, if you're right. in a studio and you're, you've signed a contract that has a non-complete clause, you're relying on that singular income every month. And if that's cut, you know, that causes a lot of trouble. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can be more nimble as a freelancer and and have multiple projects going at once. And I know a lot of times it, it tends to be feast or famine. So sometimes there are droughts, but then yeah. when there are uh, the feast parts, uh, then you just keep really busy. And then... Um, you know, building up your your portfolio and making connections and um, doing all those kind of things so that you can lay the groundwork for for future projects. And yeah, it is a it is a much easier commitment for you know a company or a studio to bring on a freelancer uh, to do some assets versus that commitment of um, the full time salary and benefits and uh, reviews and all those kind of things. So, um, yeah, there are challenges around that. And I think that one of the pros of that is being a freelancer is you can essentially earn more, you know, like if you have multiple clients, you know, you're not working in the studio, you're not getting the benefits and entitlements or like the year mm-hmm. contracts of 12 months of work, you know, you can have two or three clients and you can basically just like, all right, I'm going to like crank these rates up, you know, when you basically get out. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you could put yourself in a position where you have enough buffer for 12 months of savings. So regardless, you kind of build a nest of a year contract worth of you know, income. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of benefits. Yeah, for sure. So what about uh, thoughts on AR and or VR? So I haven't had much experience with AR. Um, I think the, the the most I've ever had with AR is using Snapchat and having like 
those little silly like three models of like yeah. the hot dog with the, the buns right. on it, just like dancing and whatnot. But I think the most of it has kind of been through VR. Um, I, mm. I definitely see VR. I think that we're still in early days, but I would love to see it sort of grow to the point where you literally have like maybe you know it, you have like your senses, so maybe you can smell stuff, or maybe when you get yeah. shot, you kind of feel like a vibration or just more immersion. But I mean, I still mm-hmm. put on a VR headset every day when I'm doing, working on one of my projects, and I'm just like, wow, you know, it's like you, you forget mm-hmm. how immersive it becomes. You know, you don't see the room you're in; you just see the world, and you look down, and you're just like. Holy crap! But yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I definitely I would love to see it expand more. I would love to see it become more of a commercial, not necessarily commercial, but more accessible to people who can't afford an Oculus Rift or a PlayStation yeah. VR. Maybe it's just becomes the next standard sort of platform to play games on. You know, there is no more PC gaming with a keyboard, and mouse, or a console with a controller. It's literally like you have a box and a VR headset and VR controllers, and that's just yeah, I think it would open a lot of interesting um, opportunities, especially with like playing to friends. You know, um, yeah, I'm definitely not super. Um, I said over and over, I'm just kind of really excited and curious about how the Oculus Quest does, just because of the price point and the accessibility and the lack of uh, high end computers and monitors. And I meant um, not even the cameras and all the cables and stuff like that. But tell me a little bit about developing art on VR, like, do you find you have to take more breaks or you get headaches or, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think about, you know, wearing the headset to review things and if there are differences or not, you know, between doing stuff. Uh, for- there definitely is. I mean, I find one of the differences, like when you're testing it, you have to wear the VR set and you have to navigate around the map and such. And I find after wearing VR has headset for very long, you kind of, it's like your eyes become sort of square. Like you take it off and you're just like, what? <laughs> you know, it's hard to like, kind of get back to where you're at. Yeah. I think you have to optimize a lot more for some weird reason. And to this day, I still don't understand in my head how you can have an extremely powerful computer, but yet you have to keep everything super simple in VR because it just doesn't run formally otherwise. Um, yeah. But yeah, like you're essentially, you would pretty much, you know, you take your standard AAA quality and you pretty cut it by 50% if you wanted to perform a VR project. Yeah. And just to jump in there, I think part of that too is you've got to run it, you know, uh, frame rate, right? So you, you have to ideally be running there at, at, at 60. And then because you've got two screens, you know, yeah. then then that's, you know, 120. So that really eats into the the performance. And, um, you know, when you're not running at a steady, fast frame rate, then that adds, uh, causes nausea and dizziness and, and things like that. It makes it a lot harder on the player. So, um, yeah, even though you have like this big, crazy, powerful computer, then having to run, you know, two screens at 60 chops into all the the options you have because um, that's just such a threshold that you have to stay above. Exactly. And I find when you're developing for VR, if you literally like, if you're in like Unreal Editor, for example, and you have like the development build open and you jump into a map and some coder or whatnot's made changes and you put the headset on, you start looking around and it's chopping like crazy with the frame rate. Like it, mm-hmm. it definitely very quickly makes you feel sick. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, I, I gotta, I gotta go walk around and get some uh, fresh air here and get away from this. <laughs> so, what game uh, are you playing right now that you're excited about, or that you've 
say played recently? Sure. So looking at my library, I think the most played game at the moment is probably Insurgency Sandstorm. Um, it's totally mm. not biased, um, but it's definitely one of the best FPS games I've played so far. And it's who makes that? So there's a studio in Denver called New World Interactive, and they have a smaller satellite studio in Amsterdam, and they are now opening another studio in Calgary. And huh. they're primarily just a US company, and they pretty much work on Insurgency Sandstorm, which is a tactical FPS shooter with kind of a more okay. of an RKD feel rather than realistic, like more tactical, you know, slow pace. One thing that makes it really exciting for me is just. The sign design is just absolutely phenomenal. Like, I'm not sure how hmm. the sign designers actually produce the signs, but it literally is just so real and so well done. So, like, to pretty much movie quality where you're playing it and you get extremely stressed when you're under fire because the signs are just so realistic. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sound can add a lot of tension and, uh, and drama to things and stuff. Um, Speaking of sound, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do a, a shameless plug here. Our our new Cardio X game uh, is the first game we developed at Level X that has um, a full-time sound designer working on it. And he created a soundtrack um, also on, that's on Spotify now for the game that's a, a lot of uh, ambient and uh, techno and um, just really cool music, even some metal tracks in there. And uh, wow. it's really wild how, um, yeah, sound does make such a huge difference, you know, in not just, you know, uh, arcade or uh, console or PC, but even mobile games. So I'll put a link to the show notes for the Cardio X soundtrack. Pretty cool stuff. Okay. What about a funny or odd story from working in the game industry that you can share that you won't get in trouble for? <laughs> I think probably the one funny story from working in the industry is probably when I was working at Rockstar, we had the whole Lindsay Lohan lawsuit happening. And, um, what was that about? So essentially, that. Grand Theft Auto V, there was a concept drawing of a character uh-huh. for the loading screen, and it was like this blonde girl with um, a very prominent body and like a red bikini with glasses. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, Lindsay Lohan thought that that was her, and basically Rockstar <laughs> are making money off her by doing a sketch of her, which is just absolute BS. And, uh, yeah. Basically, during my time working well, on Well, she was drunk in, in her defense. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she, uh, so basically, when I was working on Red, Red Dead Redemption 2, we pretty much just like, you know, that whole rigmarole was going on. And it was just funny to kind of like have an insight to it and kind of just hear people's opinions and whatnot of it. And then, of course, how she lost the lawsuit because she had absolutely no ground to stand on. So that was the first time I've ever kind of experienced what not, not only something funny, but sort of the relation of how, you know, such a huge game can kind of end up in such a weird lawsuit like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, well, something gets huge and then people uh, are kind of like, you know, try to glom onto it and, and, and get their piece of the pie. So yeah, I, I just looked it up here now about the GTA five, maybe because she was being arrested and she had sunglasses on that <laughs> claims that was her. Um, What's well, funny too, when I typed up Lindsay Lohan, lawsuit it showed other lawsuits so yeah this oh wow okay well that says a lot <laughs> yeah she's got bills you know but um no that's funny <laughs> cool so where can people find you on um online website twitter stuff like that yeah so like one of the name uh Brady art which uh my website is just brittyart.xyz um 
I'm on LinkedIn as well, which is just James Brady, but in the header being Brady Art. Typically, mm-hmm. kind of like any podcast or anything I've done, it's kind of like the, the holder name that I, uh, people can find me on. Like, if you just type Brady Art into Google, maybe like, maybe one of the projects I've worked on after it, then they'll probably be able to find like the publications, the podcast, my website, and perhaps my LinkedIn as well. Yeah. You have an amazing career for a relatively, you know, short period of time in the industry. If, if uh, you know, 2015 to now, to have all these titles under your belt is uh, is very impressive. And uh, I'm sure people are going to be continuing to hire you and, and reaching out to you. So I'll have all this info in the show notes. And uh, yeah, James, it's, it's been great. Is there anything else you want to say or bring up or share? Um, no, I can't, I can't think of anything at the moment. <laughs> okay, well, cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website, gamedevadvice.com. I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.